You are now listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Doc, sharing insights through real, honest, and practical ways to improve your communication and relationships. Featuring your hosts, Dr. Pamela Kreiser, Meredith Edwards Nagel, and Taylor Polindo. A number of years ago, I was in a car accident, and the woman hit my car from behind, so I had a lot of repairs on my car. When I went to pick up my car, the technician said this, my career in customer service is based on receiving all five-star reviews. Would you like the link to be able to give me a five-star rating? I laughed on the inside and wondered if he had ever received an honest rating. Well, this is an instance where suggestibility is at play. The technician was using a leading question, something that sadly occurs too frequently in our speech, and we may not even realize it. Leading questions are used by attorneys, parents, teachers, employees, supervisors, and possibly even you. Part of the problem is our assumptions are embedded in the questions we ask. We assume how someone would respond to situations and messages. We assume we know how people feel. And our phrasing reflects these assumptions. I was in a restaurant the other day, and the server came up to our table and said, were your meals delicious? I had to laugh. It was a blatantly leading question. I may or may not have been thinking the meal was delicious, but now the idea was planted. You can hear it embedded in the structure of the question. Have you ever analyzed whether you use leading questions? And if so, how often? Black's Law Dictionary defines a leading question as a question that suggests the answer to the person being interrogated. Sounds pretty harsh, right? Well, it's precisely those suggestions that should concern us. So let's take a closer look. Scott and Stewart tell us that leading questions can vary in three important ways. One, questions can be leading because of how they're structured. Two, questions can be leading because of the content used in the question itself. And three, questions can be leading because of how they're presented in context. So let's think through each of these variations. Some questions are leading in their structure. Now this is about how the question is technically structured or ordered or put together. These types of leading questions are structured and usually include the answer. Now notice I said the answer because it suggests that there's a correct answer. And sometimes leading questions are structured to embed this sort of correct answer. Sometimes we sequence questions in order to lead us to a particular answer. Now these structures typically also block people from providing an answer. Often responders are forced to use a yes or no response. Here's some examples. Wouldn't you agree that our boss interrupts everyone in meetings? Isn't it true that women are more emotional than men? The answer is 100, correct? These are all examples of structural ways that questions become leading. Here's another one. How fast was the car going when it went through the red light? Notice that speed was embedded in the formatting of the question. The second category is content. Some questions are leading in terms of their content. Now in this category, it's all about the words. So it's how the facts are used and distorted. These types of questions use what researchers call unsupported assertions because they present them as facts, distorting supported facts in an unbalanced way or using loaded words. Here are some examples. Studies show that greater consumer spending leads to greater product development. Do you favor consumer spending? Or this example. Some people say that Kobe Bryant was the greatest basketball player of all time. Do you agree? Notice the unsupported assertions are presented as facts, often in the front of the question, followed by a prompt to answer. The third category is context. Now this can be done in two different ways. 
One way is to sequence the questions in order to telegraph the desired answer to the recipient. And then sometimes it's done in a second way, which is manipulating the nonverbal delivery of the question to shape the response. Now, in terms of nonverbal, the questioner can heavily influence how leading a question is by manipulating aspects of voice, speaking rate, enthusiasm, facial expressions, and lots of other behaviors. As we reflect on our communication, it's possible that you and I are using leading questions without even realizing it. To become aware of this possibility, I've created a simple test that you and I can perform on the questions that we are considering in order to test their neutrality. Test number one, does the question I'm asking have a single answer? Test number two, is the question I'm asking only expressing a single point of view? Test number three, Is the question I'm asking based on unsupported facts? Test number four. Am I delivering this question in a nonverbal way that manipulates the receiver? If your question fails any of these standards, you may need to rephrase it. Overall, we'll be better off if we start to look at human interaction as data collection rather than confirmation of what you're thinking. Remember, you're trying to understand their narrative, not confirm the narrative in your head. We could all benefit from approaching interactions with a better mindset. Approach the interaction thinking you want to learn something new that you don't already know. Something I want to know, Meredith, do they teach you how to manipulate people in law school? Is that a bad thing to ask? Yeah, it's like a whole class. It's it's 101. Manipulation 101. No, no, they don't teach you that. Do they just not call it that, but they do teach it to you? Well, leading questions are usually on cross-examination, right? Mm -hmm. A leading question is supposed to get you to say yes or no, or to just agree with whatever they're saying or disagree, if that's the point. Mm -hmm. You said earlier about Black's Law defines as suggesting an answer to an interrogated person. I threw in the Black's Law dictionary just because I knew it would warm your heart. I loved it. Oh, good old days. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd have an attorney who would intentionally train using this type of method, right? But the reality is a bunch of us use it in our speech already. Yeah. I know some people who really do it a lot. Mm -hmm. Some of those people that are really good at it end up being attorneys. (laughs) Yeah. But if you think about it, it's like very manipulating to narrow the point of view the other party can have. Yeah. That's kind of how I see it. You're trying to get someone to believe your story. Yeah. So let's talk about this. Okay. So I read a bunch of studies by Loftus, who's a criminal researcher for witnesses. Mm -hmm. And Loftus talks about a very scary thing, true presuppositions and false presuppositions. So they do these experiments suggesting that an object was there that wasn't. Hmm. So they ask it as something about that object that was not there in a way to try to suggest that it was there. Mm. And then on the other side, they do false presuppositions, suggesting something wasn't in the experiment when it actually was. Mm. But the part that was really disturbing for me was that subjects were far more likely to believe the true presuppositions and the false presuppositions. But they not only did it and said the object was there when it wasn't or wasn't there when it was, but they also started adding it to their memory. What? you ask them later about it, they would add the false presuppositions, you know, the true presuppositions and the false ones into their actual memory of what happened. Oh my God. So this researcher says added to the memorial representation of the event, which makes it reconstructed or altered from the actual thing that happened. 
Isn't that why eyewitnesses are not believable? I mean, I've certainly heard that. Not only did you think the object was there or not there, you also added it to what you thought about the event going forward. Hmm. Pretty interesting stuff, I think. I was just thinking about our first episode and the message received is the one that counts and how much assuming we do in communication. And that's a lot of what this is, is we're assuming we know the answer to something. That's why we ask it that way. Mm-hmm. We need to stop assuming and ask real genuine questions to find. I love that human interaction. Look at it as data collection. I knew yeah. someone was going to bring that up. I loved that. Bunch of nerds. I love it. Wanting to learn something like we yes. need to want to learn something new. So we have to stop assuming that we know the answer and take a step back and like genuinely ask questions. And I would say as a mother who had high schoolers, I don't have them now, they're older now. I remember having that mindset and I would be so surprised at what they actually said was going on because hmm. I would approach them in high school just like, hey, I'm going to assume I don't know how your day went. I'm going to assume I don't know what's going on. And I was so surprised so often with what was actually going on. You don't know what's going on with a high schooler. <laughs> You tagged on that when you talked about human interaction being data collection earlier. You said that it's important that not to confirm the narrative in your own head, but to actually get the information from the other person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I was, this is, this is my favorite like nerding out episode <laughs> of all time. It's a mix of legalese meets communication. <laughs> yeah. Confirming the narrative in your head is a very dangerous way to live because right. it's, it assumes that you know everything. And we have learned like over the course of this podcast that we really don't know what's going on and we know way less than we think we do. Yeah. We're very wrong most of the time. (laughs) Yeah. And, and missing pieces. So think of the times where you've been in interaction with someone who doesn't realize how narrow their thinking is Mm -hmm. and you watch them miss information. Mm -hmm. You watch them ask someone how they're doing and not really find out because they told them how they were doing. Hmm. Ooh. They're like, how are you doing? Great. Is everything great? And then they just confirm the narrative in their head that everything's going great and don't allow for a different response. And now we just missed maybe all of what's going on. I think of three bubbles. One is this more legally is let me get you to think what I'm thinking. I'm manipulating the answer because I already know what it is and it's good, whatever, or bad, whatever it is. The second is what sort of what Taylor is saying. It's sort of like this gentle, non-direct approach, not trying to like burn someone or whatever it is. And then the third would be, I feel bad about myself. So I'm going to ask questions or tell stories, just confirm this bad feeling about me. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked a bit about that. Mm -hmm. The stories we make up in our head like that. Yeah. I like it. Okay. You ready for my quiz? Yes. Okay. Quiz time. Taylor. Who will win this week? Hmm. I'm going to give you an example. You have to say one, whether it's leading or not. And two, what standard does it violate if it is leading? Is it leading and what standard does it violate? You can say either not leading or leading. And here's what's wrong with it. Got it. Okay. I'm going to start with Taylor. Throw her an easy one. Don't say it's easy because then if I mess up. Okay, here's the example. What do you like about this idea? Okay, it is leading. Correct. Because that's like the speed one. So which of the four standards? I think that's content. The words that we're assuming are facts. 
like that I'm assuming you do like it. Yes, correct. <laughs> okay, Meredith. Oh. How would you rate our food service on a scale of one to 10? That's not leading. Correct. <laughs> you tried to trick me. All right, Taylor, back to you. Are you aware that the insurance policy doesn't cover earthquakes? It just sounds like a question to me. Is it leading or not? It is a question. (laughs) No, I don't think it's leading. (laughs) So it is leading. Okay. Because it has a correct answer. So when we all read insurance policies, we could believe one thing or the other. It suggests that I've interpreted that there isn't coverage. So I'm pushing you into the idea of believing that there isn't coverage, even though you haven't necessarily read it. Okay. All right, Meredith, you ready for your question? Yes. Did you see James at 3 p.m.? That sounds like a structural question. So is it leading? Did you see him? That would be a yes, a leading. And it sounds structural because there is an answer at 3 p.m. You're right that it's structure and the answer both. And the only thing that could be also is an unsupported fact. Boom shakalaka. Very well done. Oh, because did I even see him? Yes. Okay, ready, Taylor? Uh, sure. <laughs> How likely are you to purchase our product because of your experience? Mm, okay, I think it is leading. Incorrect. Oh my God. Yeah. How likely? How? How likely are you to purchase our product based on your experience? How likely? But you're leading that my experience is going to influence me purchasing something. Well, it says how likely. So you're really close to the rewrite to make it leading would be, are you more likely to purchase the product because of your experience? Oh, geez. So that would make it leading. I'm not likely at all. (laughs) (laughs) Zero. Last one. What problems did you encounter using our product, Meredith? What problems did you encounter? What problems did you encounter using our product? I think it is leading because it assumes that there are problems. Correct. Assuming a fact, I believe that there are problems. So content. Yep. You guys survived. Yeah, right. I think we use a lot of leading questions in customer service. The way I ask things, you know, how are you enjoying that? Mm-hmm. I don't even want to offer the possibility that you're not enjoying it. Just tell me how much you're enjoying. You're like the server that asked me, were your meals delicious? No, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I felt at the table, I couldn't really say they weren't because that part of the spectrum was wiped out. Yeah. Oh, well, we don't really care. Did you, <laughs> do you think we really cared? <laughs> Yeah, you're not really collecting data. You're simply just reinforcing a narrative that you want us to have, right? Yeah, and put a positive spin on your experience. Mm -hmm. You often use leading questions as a flight attendant to try to get people to enjoy their experiences. Yeah, I think I used it more when I was working in a restaurant back in college days. Yeah, I think just in general in customer service, we're trying to paint a very 
positive outlook for you mm-hmm. and kind of not even give you the opportunity to go negative because people will so easily anyway. So mm-hmm. we don't need to lead you there. Yeah. I wonder how much that translates back into people's lives. If we keep hearing that in customer service environments, how much we become comfortable with leading questions and how much of the, of the information we miss. Mm-hmm. Miss it as the person asking the leading question or the person receiving them? I think either. If we're exposed to constant customer service situations and or behaving in those situations, we're likely to start really importing this into our regular interpersonal speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. If this is infiltrating our speech as much as it appears that it is, we would need to have some tests to run or on the questions that we're asking in order to see it. Cause I would think we'd become progressively blind to it. Mm-hmm. So you've quizzed us <laughs> on the three structure, content and context. Yeah. So can we dabble in these tests because I like them? Oh yeah, let's do it. So our first test question is, does the question have a single answer mm-hmm. or usually a right answer? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Right. Mm. Now, as a teacher, you ask leading questions all the time. Is that a negative? You have a right answer you're looking for. When I first started teaching, I was nervous about students because I just got the job when I was 21, right? So I was nervous that students would think I was a fraud. So I would often have the answer in mind and I would ask a question where there was the right answer that I could quickly give and look like I knew things. Imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. What happened though was very interesting because it strangles the discussion. There's a right answer and then nobody says anything. It's kind of very bland and very formulaic. Interesting. And I would translate that back into experiences that we have with people where we could think I'm going to talk to this person and try to craft how their answers go or try to shape their opinion or keep them in a certain lane. The really great organic things in our lives that go to a place that we can't predict is the adventure. I really like that. And I like that the opposite of that creativity and the opposite of those opportunities and those places you can go is what you called strangling a conversation. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel good to do have that done to you. So you, you kind of have to play with that imagery a little bit. I'm visual. So I like that. That makes me think when I'm doing these tests, like, am I doing that to someone I'm in a relationship with? Mm -hmm. Am I strangling an opportunity for creativity or learning a little bit more about this person? Mm -hmm. Okay. So wait, these tests one through four. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote question mark equals one answer, or like you said, the answers question mark equals one answer question mark equals only one point of view. Yeah. Question mark equals unsupported facts. Question mark equals nonverbals of mi- or manipulating the receiver. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are my, did I miss one? I got them. No, that you got them. I'm a good student. See, nailed it. Trying to try to uh, lead you into that. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. No, those are good. Um, and I think they're good tests to kind of think about how much we're, regardless of our motives, narrowing the conversation. Yeah. So you want to hear some good news? Always. Study by Howe and Merkelbach. They looked at children versus adults mm-hmm. and how susceptible they are to suggestions. Hmm. Guess who's less susceptible? Children, probably. Yeah. Purely, roughly honest. Yep. Yeah, because what they argue in their study 
is that adults frequently take information and fit it into their experience. And children often don't have experience to fit it into. They don't attach any meaning to it. They just experience it. Hmm. That adage that we should look at everything with the eyes of a child seems to appear true in that way. Yeah, that is so accurate. Oh my God, I'm thinking of my nephew. (laughs) So true. Oh God. Mm -hmm. Can I tell a little story? Please. My nephew, the other day, we're in the, my parents' backyard and my father, his grandfather is trying to talk to him about how you only pick ripe tomatoes and that they're red. So there's an answer to what you do and is trying to convince him of this. And my nephew picks a tomato that's not completely red and looks at my father and says, but grandpa, sometimes they be orange. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to convince him that tomatoes are red. For me, it's just, I, I don't have children, but it's a really pure example of seeing kids just see what they see and soak in the world around them or take in the data, if you will. Yeah. Those aren't just red. Sometimes they're orange and he's not wrong. Yeah, true. (laughs) Okay. I want to tackle unsupported facts because can they be supported sometimes? This is where you're asking a question, assuming a fact that is not supported, meaning there is no evidence of it. Here's an example. I do mediations involving car collisions and I could ask the question, how much over the speed limit were you going when you entered the intersection? I'm leading that there was a speeding part going on and that you entered the intersection a certain way, right? I can do all these different things can be embedded in my question. And I'm suggesting that to the other party. And there isn't evidence maybe of speeding. And we don't have evidence of entry into the intersection. Maybe the accident didn't even happen there. That's so manipulative. Oh, yeah. Oh, speeding in the intersection. Like you're in in a moment of pressure like that, of course, or other people that are witnesses were like, yeah, they were speeding in the intersection. It just gets people to believe that narrative, that story. That's why a lot of times as a mediator, I ask a lot of what questions or what happened next, very, very open and very little embedded in the question because of that exact reason. With legal things that happens all the time because they're trying to get you to falter and agree, even if you didn't do something. Yeah, I I think that's accurate. And that's why as a mediator, we don't do those exact things. But say um, you ask a question without giving the facts, but there are facts out there about this information, is that still a leading question? I think it's leading to when they're not presented to assume they're there. So are you giving examples then in your work uh, that are the opposite of leading? Should we have some sandwich examples in here of non-leading questions? For me, the, the thing to think about in this episode is Do people in your life tell you, I feel like you're assuming things about me or you're assuming something all the time. Mm -hmm. If you get asked of you, you may need to check yourself and have some options for things that aren't leading, right? And it happens to all Mm -hmm. of us. I've heard it before. Like, why are you assuming that I'm feeling this way? Or why are you assuming that I think that? For me, that's going to be like that stopper. Like, ooh, if I hear that, I need to check what, how I've been asking things and go back and do this test. What are some ideas for reframing leading into non-leading questions? I think one big one is in the area of emotions. So somebody experiences something and we say, how sad are you about that? Hmm. Or how happy are you about the good news? We tell them how to feel Hmm. instead of saying, how do you feel about that? And what I find is that people don't always answer in the way I think. So I've had people in some of my mediation cases and they're crying and I'll think it's because they're angry And they'll say, no, it's because I'm 
frustrated that I'm at court. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the Mm -hmm. case. I have to go pick up my kid and I need to leave. And you get a different set of information than Mm -hmm. you plan. I really like that about this. I keep wanting to go back to your imagination of strangling a conversation because every time you give the option for something else, you're opening the door into more information. What was that episode where you offered to perception check? Perception check. Sounds like we have to do a lot of what and how questions. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor, for like, that's sandwiching for me, this thing. (laughs) That's a beautiful sandwich (laughs) that you can eat, Meredith. For you, when you hear leading questions, what is your response? So what's the advice for the people who are with the people asking all these leading questions? I mean, one is discerning it. I recently got a raise at my job and I was asked how happy I was about it, but it was so small that I wasn't happy about it. But I think being able to hear what's going on in the questioning gives you a little more freedom to say, wait, they're narrowing the scope. That doesn't mean I have to answer it that way. That's a, that's a really good point. I like this with emotions. Should we tell children out there to do this to their parents? <laughs> I don't know that children are listening to our podcast. I'm hoping not. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mom, why is that the best option? Are there any other options besides cleaning my room? <laughs> so do we pick on mom before we go? Because I think moms do a lot of leading questions. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe parents, we could say parents. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some parents do it to mitigate the uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty in parenting. So it'd just be easier if I got you to think it a certain way or believe a certain thing that I believe. And I think that's a troubling area to consider. You and your uncertainty and certainty research. All the way. This, that is an interesting tie to this. Now you've made a dessert after the sandwich with your certainty <laughs> and uncertainty. Because now if you're leading, then you're just trying to break what you think is uncertain. You're showing your weakness. You're showing your weak card yeah. that you have a nervousness or control of the uncertain situation. And you're trying to force something to be certain. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think as parents, we don't know so much and we're yeah, definitely trying to not tip our kids off to that. But I think that it does a disservice to them. I can think of like an age when I realized my parents weren't always right or didn't always make the right choice or know everything. And it was kind of earth shattering to me. And I wish that I would have just known that like, it's okay that they make mistakes or Mm -hmm. don't know everything. So it's important to apologize as a parent. So I'm going to put a little flour on your plate because there's dessert and the sandwich. So now I'm going to add a little flour to end this. Mm, Beautiful. And say, to the extent that I have a right answer in my head Mm -hmm. as a parent, and I'm trying to telegraph that continually to the children that I'm raising, I worry about them becoming me, Hmm. not them. Because too much of that translates into them becoming me which one of the tasks of parenting is to grow the child into themselves, not to replicate ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge, I I understand it's uncertain. I get it to the parents listening. I understand a very scary thing I just said, but I do think that we want to have that be the master test. Mm. Am I communicating with people around me so that they, I'm merely replicating my own ideas or my own presence in their lives 
And is that helping anyone become more of themselves? You just led us into a beautiful close. (laughs) That was great. As we approach the holidays, we have an important announcement. We will be kicking off our new six-part holiday series called Family Survival Kit for the Holidays. Our first episode will be published on November 16th, and it will be available on YouTube in video format, as well as in our usual audio podcast format. We hope you will check it out and join us as you prepare your holidays, but also your communication with your family. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Please remember to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. And thank you for listening to Asking for a Friend. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Our email is hello at afafpodcast.com. This show is for educational purposes only and is copyrighted. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thanks for listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Talk.